ambulances screaming all over the city and more sound. More shots being fired at the tower and on the tower. Before Columbine, before Sandy Hook, before Virginia Tech, there was the sniper in the tower at the University of Texas. America's first mass murder and school shooting unfolded on live television in Austin, Texas more than a half century ago. This is a True Crime Reporter Confidential with me, Robert Riggs, and my co-host, former U.S. Prosecutor Bill Johnston. For more than a half century, the question has lingered, why did he do it? Gary Laverne, the author of A Sniper in the Tower, The Charles Whitman Murders, is going to address the whys and the myths about the why. In 96 minutes, Whitman cut down nearly 50 people with 150 rifle shots from the top of the iconic University of Texas clock tower on August 1st, 1966. The 25-year-old architectural engineering major arrived at the tower shortly before noon dressed as a maintenance man. He politely thanked the receptionist for turning on the elevator, stating, You don't know how happy that makes me. He wheeled a footlocker loaded with firearms and supplies onto the elevator to the 27th floor and then dragged it upstairs to the 30th floor observation deck. From his perch there, 300 feet above the campus, Charles Whitman methodically picked off victims as far as five blocks away. Hundreds of students, professors, tourists, and store clerks witnessed the killing spree. They crouched behind trees, hid under desks, and took cover in stairwells. Some of the wounded played dead, lying in the open. Seventeen people died. In the pre-dawn hours, Whitman had stabbed his mother to death in her apartment and stabbed his wife, Kathy, to death in bed as she slept. It stunned the nation. It was beyond comprehension. Whitman was blonde, good-looking, solidly built. I remember he seemed like a nice, clean-cut, all-American kind of guy, said Austin newspaper columnist Dave McNeely. McNeely had met Whitman at his birthday party a few months earlier. The lead guitar player in McNeely's band was close friends with Whitman. Surely, people said, Whitman must have been crazy. If police had taken Whitman alive, could he have used the insanity defense? Bill will walk us through Texas law later in the podcast. We have placed links in the show notes to black and white film footage from the shooting and a video of Gary Laverne following the sniper's trail to the top of the UT Tower. Laverne's book revealed that Whitman had been thinking about doing this for five years. In early September of 1961, Whitman was standing on the seventh-floor balcony of the good old wooden dorm, looking at the tower, when he turned to a friend and said, You know, that would be a great place to go up with a rifle and shoot people. You could hold off an army for as long as you wanted. Laverne says Whitman wasn't like you or me. Instead of seeing the tower, he saw a fortress. Instead of rain spouts, he saw gun turrets. Austin back then um, bears little resemblance to the Austin that we're familiar with today. For one thing, back then, the skyscraper in the city itself was the UT Tower. And uh, today, from a distance, you can barely even notice it or even see it. It was a 
a city that maybe had one quarter uh, of the population that it has today, and in terms of um, acreage or square miles, uh, it was it was just a fraction of the size that it is today. It, it wasn't a sprawling place. It was more like an Athens, Georgia, a, a smaller college town, but still the home of a very large university. And the tower described it. It was 300 feet tall. It was the center of the campus. It had a clock tower at the top. And when the University of Texas teams would win in athletics or other endeavors, they, they would put an orange light on it at night. One of the presidents that I worked for when I worked at the University of Texas used to tell me that he was always amazed at the, the um, power that tower had as a symbol to communicate things, even something as simple as winning a football game. You would think, well, the University of Texas football wins another game. Well, there's nothing unusual about that, but there was something special about those those victories. When you looked up at that iconic tower and it was bathed in this orange light, and I don't, I can't readily think of another symbol of a registered trademark of a university quite like it, where you can literally change colors and project things onto it and off of it. Uh, it it's a very, very powerful symbol. And having worked in that building and knowing how old and outdated it in fact is, I just can't help but wonder whether or not that building would have been demolished a long time ago were it not for the fact that it is the UT Tower. You know, you talked about Austin and how different it is today geographically and obviously with population and so forth. During our discussion about the serial killer Kenneth McDuff in podcasts and now in a show coming up, we've talked about Austin, how relatively innocent it was in the early 90s, almost no violent crime. Going back be, before that to the mid-60s, I don't know that anybody in Austin, I had an uncle that lived there, locked their door. It was, <clears throat> Austin had a town feel, not a city feel. And it seems like part of the shock, part of the shock mm -hmm. of this event um, was that breaking the thick ice of innocence, really, that existed over Austin. And it seemed like after that happened, it almost settled down again. Then we get to McDuff and the yogurt shop. So as a as a teenager in Texas in the 60s, I mean, there were two things you that were etched in your memory. One, where you were when you heard that President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. And secondly, where you were when you heard what was happening at that tower, and I remember turning on the radio out of one of my good friends, his uh, brother was a student there. People were huddled around transistors radios all over the state listening to this unfold. So tell what what did Whitman do, and just kind of describe it, because I remember stories of, you know, somebody stepped out of a barber shop to see what was going on and was shot dead. Well, just, just to give you an idea of for its time and place— I was I was a, a nine years old, growing up in Cajun, Louisiana, 
And I remember when it happened, um, and I remember it largely because my father was the chief of police of the little town where I was growing up in, and I remember very vividly his reaction to that. And um, But to, to get to your question uh, directly, um, the, the thing about the, the UT Tower story, especially in the context of a place like Austin, is that Austin had seen uh, violence before. It had seen, it had even seen mass murder before in the 1880s. There was something called the Servant Girl Annihilator, who some books claim is America's first serial killer, which is probably a stretch. But the point is that uh, uh, this person was called uh, the, the first Jack the Ripper. Uh, or the Jack the Ripper of America, whatever. That was in Austin, and that was back in the days of O. Henry when, when he lived there. Um, and then you you go a long, long stretch of time until uh, there were a few other high-profile murders, but they were high-profile in Austin because... Austin wasn't used to these kinds of things. They weren't, they weren't used to a whole lot of violence to begin with. You have a very large university and you have the, st- the seat of state government, which even today are the two larger employees, employers of that area. And um, what you have is an influx of basically very highly or you know moderately educated people um, you have a lot of people coming in and out of town, but most of the people were like me. Uh, I lived in one of the suburbs, and I took a bus into town. I got on the bus every day, and everybody else looked just like me. You know, most of the time, a coat and a tie and so forth, and here I am riding a bus. That's kind of what Austin was really like. It was a place where you you felt safe. Um, and then those notions are just shaken every, um, say, 50 to 30 to 50 years. The the major example being the UT Tower shooting in 1966. And then it wasn't until 1991 where you have this combination of the yoga shop murders and the arrival of Kenneth McDuff. So between the tower and something like McDuff, you still have nearly a 30-year period. And that's kind of like what Austin is like. Uh, you have these long periods, these these very long periods of uh, relative calm in terms of criminal statistics and criminal activities and things like that. When we talk about this case, someone that may be listening to this that is 18 years old or 38 years old may have no clue what we're talking about. Um, the way people have a short memory, the lack of interest in history that we had a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But the, the significance, and we talked just before we went on the air, the significance of this is you described it as, help me out, the first public mass mm-hmm. shooting sure, and the first school shooting yeah. in America. That's There was no precedent. There was no pattern for this at the time, was there? Well, and and it also happened at a time when television uh, became capable of covering something live. So in many ways, this was the first uh, 
school shooting um, in which a person targeted strangers and and uh, got up there intending to kill as many people as possible. And much of it was covered live on television, which we had not seen before. The Kennedy assassination was only three years earlier than that, but the assassin, assassination itself wasn't covered live on television in the same way that um, this was. I mean, you, you could still see on live television uh, bodies lying on the sidewalks and students running through open fields to rescue wounded people. That was, And I can't think of another example of... Um, of something like that uh, before. Another thing that was uh, pointed out to me by a professor at Purdue is that uh, this is also one of the first incidences uh, in which the, the general public showed up with their own weapons and actually fired back yes. at, the, um, at, at the sniper, the perpetrator himself. And this professor from Purdue told me, he said the last time that happened was um, in, um, in Minnesota when the people of a small town responded to uh, a robbery in progress, you know, the, the mm-hmm. Jesse James, I think it was the Jesse James gang, you know, and that hadn't happened since 18, 1876 or something like that. Yeah. And in that live television coverage, you could see Puffs of smoke. The civilians, the debris flying as the bullets ricochet off the— The limestone of the tower itself. Yes, yeah. And those scars are still there. If you take that tower tour today, you can go up there, and it's repaired, but it's not repaired so perfectly that you can't see where those bullet holes are. They're, they're still there. For those that don't know enough about it, haven't read your book yet, which they should, to really understand the whole story, what was he armed with, more or less, to the extent you recall sitting here— and what do you do, and how long did it last? Just the the there's so much that happened before, but the in the sure. period of time just before and during. Well, he spent about forty eight hours um, getting ready, and planned very very meticulously. He planned everything down to having rolls of toilet paper available to him in case he needed to do what he had to do while he was up there. Uh, his planning, in in my view, it, it's pretty clear that his planning and what he brought up there conclusively uh, means that he intended to be up there a long time, probably a day or at least a couple of days. His arsenal um, also reflected his planning insofar as he had um, a number of pistols, which he uh, probably did not use or more than maybe one or two shots, but he had four rifles. And um, one of them was a a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun, double barrel, and he sawed off the barrel and the stock. And I'm convinced that he knew that up there in the tower, there were some very narrow hallways, and he intended to or he planned for um, a shootout of some sort, and that would allow him to spin around in all directions in these very narrow hallways. He had uh, also uh, the, the deadliest of his arsenal was the 6-millimeter um, 
Remington, a deer rifle with a four-power Leopold scope. And once he had control of the deck itself, he used that for long-range shooting. He was a former Marine, but he was a marksman before he became a Marine um, through training with his father. And he was an avid hunter, and um, he knew more about guns before he became a Marine than many Marines know after their hitch. So this is a guy who knew what he was doing, and um, he planned for it. He brought what he needed up there. Uh, he had pieces of rope, which, in my view, probably he figured he might have to tie somebody up. He had two and a half gallons of gasoline. Well, you might need to set the stairs on fire. See, a lot of people have come after me. And they say, why did he have all of this stuff up there? Can't you see he was crazy? Well, no. I can take every one of those things he had in that footlocker up there, and I can tell you why he had it up there. Well, what is he doing with some sandwiches? Well, he plans on being up there long enough to eat. What's crazy about that? It's just preparation and a, and a forethought. Oh, absolutely. That's what it shows. All right. he, he prepared for that. Uh, I mean, I, I drove from Austin uh, all the way over here today, and he prepared for that better than I prepared for my trip to Dallas here, I can tell you that. So the image we always have of him in anything out online or books is the high school yearbook photo of he's blonde, blue-eyed, and handsome, athletic-looking, and he's always described as the all-American boy just off that photo. Yeah. What really? What was he really, and how does that sort of deceive the public about his sanity? The 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 all American boy thing came about because after the day after the uh, shooting itself, a university psychiatrist who had seen Whitman described him as you know he had all the characteristics of the all American boy meaning he was blonde, blue-eyed, crew-cut, former Marine, big, strong, handsome. He was a very, very handsome young fellow. And and people latched on to that. It became a headline. Uh, but the, the doctor was describing his physical characteristics, but he certainly wasn't describing his behavior because um, he had a long history of uh, having problems controlling his his temper. It's one of the things that I had to really check carefully before writing my book and, and while I was writing it is that he could be described as the perfect son, and yet he hated his father with a passion. He's been described as a dutiful husband, and yet the truth is he beat his wife. He's been described as uh, an honor student, and uh, I have a copy of his transcript. And he, when he at at the time of his death, his grade point average was about one point nine. A lot. None of those things are none of those things are in fact true. And I think it has something to do, frankly, with the power of beauty. He was a big, strong, good-looking kid. That uh, man, I wish I looked like that. Uh, and and the power of beauty suggests to you that there's 
that certain characteristics must come from that, and that includes being smart and being nice. And um, and he sounds like a mean jerk. Well, he could be. Well, it was very hard. Uh, as I mean, he's not like Macduff. I, I spent three years researching everything Macduff did, and I found not a single moment in that guy's life that he did something charitable for someone else. It's like saying a shark did something nice in the ocean. I mean, uh, <laughs> All they do is tear uh, things to pieces. Oh, yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed the sting of that jellyfish, <laughs> you know, that, uh, that kind of thing. Right. But, but that wasn't true of Whitman. Whitman could be charming. He could be nice. He could be a good son. He just wasn't a lot of the time. And um, I think when people look at that picture you just described, for example, they want to see, because I think most of us are basically good people who want to think good things about people whenever we can. Is there, is there a bit of a comparison to Bundy, maybe, in some, in some way, in well, terms you know, of all right. the initial appearance, the impression you might get from the charming nature that he could exhibit? And not only that, someone like Bundy volunteered at uh, suicide hotlines, and the people who were there with him say he was very effective and very good at what he did. Charles Whitman um, donated blood. Charles Whitman could do thing, nice things for people, but in the end, uh, compare that to his father, who everyone think, thought was just the biggest jerk whoever lived and who was a dangerously surly father uh, and who got violent, beat his wife and beat his kids and things like that. Well, but the father never killed anybody. And that's what's hard for people to, uh, especially dilettantes who don't know what they're talking about, uh, they want to say, well, guess what? This was a nice guy. Who, who flipped, he snapped. Surely something turned this nice guy into a fellow who goes up to a tower and kills people. Surely it's not because he's a, a, a criminal or a murderer. And, and that's been very difficult for me as the author of this book to, to deal with for the, for the next 35 years. Well, one thing you've had to deal with was that shortly after this, um, Texas Governor John Conley, who was in the limousine uh, and shot by uh, in the presidential association of John Kennedy, you know, he, he had a task force afterwards, and they found that Whitman had a malignant brain tumor. And everybody latched on to the brain tumor made him do it. And they even said one that they thought he would have been dead within a year mm-hmm. with a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. What did you find? That there's a, to this day, there's a, 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 an enormous amount of confusion because if, if, if I had to rewrite Sniper in the Tower, it would pretty much be the version that I have now. But there is one thing I would do differently. And that is that I would have gone a little bit further into whether or not that tumor ever existed. I've had I've had a number after the book came out. I've had a number of people uh, 
just tell me some of whom were two of whom at least were doctors who were there who to this day well they're they've passed on now but to this day uh till the day they died they wondered whether or not there was really a tumor there at all it had something to do with the qualifications of the person who did the autopsy and whether or not he was qualified to do an autopsy like that to begin with. What what the mass was, the nature of the mass, whether the mass was malignant, all of those things, right? To me, though, and I don't want to be dismissive of that, uh, it, it doesn't worry me a whole lot because even if that tumor was there, I don't know how anyone can conclude that it could possibly have... Uh, taken control of him and made him do something against his will. In the end, the best evidence we have is what we did, and we know what he did. Any competent researcher can, through public records, through sworn testimony and uh, statements and so forth, you can reconstruct the 48 hours before he went up there. And uh, what we're dealing with is serial decisions in a correct order leading to the accomplishment of a goal. And the thing about that is that to me, that alone, I don't care if he had a tumor the size of a basketball. You can have a tumor and still do things mm-hmm. in in a planning and thoughtful way, and guess what? You you are a murderer. Okay. And in my view, whether he had a tumor is besides the point. When you look at what he did, there is no evidence of an impairment, certainly not physically because of his ability to aim and shoot, but certainly mentally. I mean, to do what he did required complete, thoughtful uh, decision making. And you believe that had he survived and gone to trial, if he tried an insanity defense, it would have unlikely resulted in an acquittal. I can't I can't imagine, and I've written this publicly, um, I can't imagine, uh, first of all, um, a defense attorney even attempting such a defense because of all the evidence that would come in, you know, for example, you know, well, um, at 11 o'clock on July 31st, you bought some canned meat and other food stuff that was found in the footlocker in your uh, 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 at the top of the tower while you're doing all this shit. Why did you buy that? And if he said, well, I wanted to have it to be at home. Well, okay. Um, then uh, why is it with you at the top of the tower? Um, at 11 o'clock on the day of the shooting... Um, or rather, at one o'clock, you you uh, visited your your wife and your mother, and you took them to lunch at White's Cafeteria. You didn't kill them then. Are you were you under the influence of the uh, of this tumor at that time? And he'd say, "Well, no." Well, okay. At six forty-five, you typed, "I decided to kill my wife, Kathy." Were you under the influence of that tumor? Well, he just decided he was, and he just typed that he was going to kill his wife, Kathy. And if he says yes, that's when the tumor kicked in. Well, then you'd point out, well, wait a minute. A few minutes after that, some friends showed up at your house 
and y'all had a nice 30 to 60 minute visit and you didn't kill them? Why is it, uh, you know, this, can you imagine a defense attorney taking this? Why is it rather that when your tumor had taken over you, you happened to be alone with your mother when you killed her? And you happened to have a large hunting knife when you did that. Oh, well, that's the part of the insanity defense. Well, you, okay, so you weren't insane after you killed your mother and you went downstairs and talked to the doorman and told her, Mama is sick, so don't disturb her. So he's covering up his crime and he's delaying the discovery of her body. It's calculating. It's calculating. I mean, and then he goes from there back to his house and he, the tumor's, Tumor's got him again because he kills his wife uh, with, and he happens to have a large hunting knife. And he does all of that. And a, a few minutes later, he calls his wife's employer and says, uh, Kathy is sick today. She's throwing up and uh, she won't be at work today. Well, he knew not to tell her employer mm -hmm. that he had just murdered her. Sure. So, and, and look. He didn't want him to come looking for her. The, the sun hasn't even come up. I, everything I told you, the sun hasn't even come up on August 1st yet. I could go on for the rest of today uh, asking people, okay, well, when Norm Kinney, a mutual friend of ours who we were we were talking about Former earlier. Former assistant DA in Dallas County, yeah, Texas. Yeah, you know, he used to have this thing. He said, okay, you're insane. He said, when— when did you first become insane? He would ask, you know, witnesses and, and expert witnesses this. He said, when did this insanity start? And no one could ever answer that question because it is a very, very shallow defense. Well, listen a minute. Let's take a break but, and come back in a minute and address the law in Texas. And if he had been captured, what would have happened? We'll be back in a moment. We're back with Gary Laverne, the author of Sniper in the Tower. I mean, it is the definitive work on Charles Whitman and what happened in August of 1966 on the University of Texas campus. And Bill has done some research into the insanity defense and law at the time. And so let's, let's suppose that he was captured and would claim insanity defense because, there are, frankly, there are a lot of... A, I call them apologists in one sense for trying to explain what he did. Bill, how, how would that play out? And, and uh, it, forgive me, Bill, but I think he would have to have gone to an insanity defense because he couldn't say he was innocent. He couldn't say it was self-defense. And he couldn't say it was an accident. That leaves him with what, Bill? Right. So we have an example in the same time frame that his trial may have taken place. Let's go to about 65, or pardon me, about a year, about a year or so later, uh, 67, 66, that time frame. We have an example of a high-profile case where the shooting was caught on television, where there was no question of what happened and who did it. And just as you said, there, 
there was hardly a defense, mm -hmm. but, oh, let's claim the insanity defense. Mm -hmm. That case was the case of Jack Ruby, mm -hmm. who killed Lee Harvey Oswald, who, who killed President Kennedy. And before our show, I read the state's brief on this issue, and I have the state's brief on this issue because my father wrote it mm -hmm. for Henry Wade, the district attorney of Dallas at the time. My father and two other gentlemen wrote a very, very long state's brief, and much of it has to do with insanity. Mm -hmm. And Jack Ruby, who we put now in the place of Charles Whitman, Jack Ruby had a high-profile lawyer, Melvin Belli, mm -hmm. out of San Francisco, one of the most preeminent attorneys in the United States during those days. And similarly, just as you said, what are they going to do? It's kind of caught red-handed. He did it on television. Everybody knew him. I mean, half the people that once he shot, they're like, Jack, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And so he did plead insanity. Mm -hmm. And Belli marched in a parade before a Dallas jury, uh, a number of psychiatrists who said an EEG showed in Ruby an irregularity and that irregularity was something in the nature of an epileptic style an anomaly. And that could lead to these manifestations and depression and other things. And they stretched it, the balloon just as far as they could. And then the Dallas District Attorney's Office, a guy known as Jim Bowie, which is a cool name for Texas, A.D. Jim Bowie, who is a friend of my dad's, he, as my father said, filleted the experts <laughs> with the truth. <laughs> and then the state called a number of experts, including the uh, Harvard neuroscientists and, and psychologists, psychiatrists, pardon me, who said, no, no, I'm sorry, you know, you can believe this if you want, but this, this isn't, there's no really cause and effect here. So we have a similar I mean, it couldn't be a more high-profile case than that. They actually went to trial. Now, Whitman's case, had it gone to trial, would have been under the same set of laws in Texas. And the law essentially hasn't changed in Texas. The insanity defense is an affirmative defense in Texas where if a person can prove or can establish by their evidence, the shifting burden of proof is hard to describe, but if they can establish that due to a serious mental disease or defect, they couldn't have known that their conduct was wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's so simple. That that uh, part of the law is probably the shortest paragraph in all of Texas law. Uh, did not know his conduct was wrong as a result of a severe mental disease or defect. Um, and that's an affirmative defense they can make. So for all the reasons we just talked about, under Texas law, the likely result, we don't know what a jury would do, but the likely result would have been the same. Well, one of the frustrating things uh, that I've had to deal with since A Sniper in the Tower came out is I have to, most of the time, I have to begin with explaining to people that insanity is not a mental illness. It is a legal condition. So when, when people say, can't you see he's, in, he's insane? And I faced a lot, of with, uh, a lot of this with the Macduff book. Gary, can't you see he's crazy? You have no argument from me about whether or not these people are crazy. Yes, they're crazy, but they 
that doesn't mean they're insane. Let me interject right there a little sidebar because we're doing the television show Free to Kill about McDuff based on our podcast, and we found Bob Schieffer, the famous CBS newsman who was a police beat reporter back in 1966 when McDuff was uh, uh, charged and convicted of murdering three teenagers. But he went with the sheriff to pick up McDuff. This is a just a couple of weeks after the tower shooting. It's all over the radio and in the news. And everybody in the car is talking about it. And McDuff has, has been surly and not saying anything. And then suddenly McDuff, the serial killer, blurts out, that guy really must have been crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My goodness. I mean, and so you, you begin with... A, a massive misconception uh, where people equate insanity with a mental illness. And when you when you look at people like Macduff or, or or Charles Whitman and so forth, for those who don't know the difference between insanity and a true mental illness, then then you you're doing a, a huge disservice to the people, the millions of people who genuinely battle mental illness on a daily basis. We should not assume that these people will do something awful. We should not assume that they will be violent, much less engage in murder and certainly not mass murder. So, you know, uh, so for most conversations I have with, you know, what I call civilians, non-lawyers and non-medical professionals, you have to begin explaining the difference. Insanity, there's a legal definition to insanity. And that definition is not determined by doctors or nurses or medical professionals. That definition, the one you read, came from the legislature of the state of Texas. Politicians decide whether or not uh, a person is insane through the definitions in their laws. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are some states that don't even have an insanity defense. Every state's different. They have mitigating factors instead of insanity. And mm-hmm. you may recall uh, those that are old enough or have read about it. Uh, when John Hinckley shot President Reagan, that occurred under the law that existed in the District of Columbia as part of the federal law, and he was he won that. Mm-hmm. And the it was not the standard we're reading. It was a very different, if I may say, kind of a mushy standard, a different, difficult to ascertain standard. And there was such an outcry after that that the law was changed. And again, by whom? Politicians, mm-hmm. because they they want, and the Supreme Court demands a fair trial, mm-hmm. but a trial that's based on understandable yeah. factors and laws. Yeah. So you, you've talked about, we've been talking about insanity and all this uh, for a pretty good while. How long was he up there and how many people did he shoot? He, um, he entered the tower at about 11.45 in the morning. He uh, made it. He made his way to the top almost immediately by taking the elevator all the way to the top, and uh, we figure he probably um, 
was up there three minutes later, about 11.48, and the first phone call to the Austin Police Department took place something like 11.52. So from the time he got there to the time he started shooting, it was it was pretty quick. He shot about 50 people uh, of whom— Hit, hit 50 people. Hit, yes. He was up there about 96 minutes— and and uh, the large majority of the people he killed and wounded were in the first 20 minutes because he had an unobstructed view and there was no return fire and so forth and uh, and he got and he got tired uh, after a while it was very hot up there it was a very hot day uh, 17 people even this is steeped in controversy in my book uh, there's 17 people uh, who were um, who were killed the last of whom died something like 25 years later of complications from a wound in the kidney mm. and the Tarrant County coroner ruled it a homicide because it was a direct result uh, How many so bullets did he fire? How many did he try to kill? He Well, he fired about 150 rounds of ammunition. He had 700 rounds up there with him. Um, so he, he did quite a bit of shooting up there. And explain how it came to an end. Well, in the end, there it's complicated because we, we started off this program by talking about how this was the first of its kind in, you know, in, certainly in modern history and so forth. And the Austin Police Department just flat didn't know what to do. They had no planning for this. Everything went wrong. And and this is why it's one of the crimes that has had the largest impact on law enforcement yes. tactics. SWAT teams and things like that, this helped to push for the formation of those things. So in the end, it took a number of very brave Austin Police Department officers they had to go up there, they had to confront him, and they end up ambushing him and, and just killing him nearly face-to-face. -face. I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't hand-to-hand -hand combat, but they were within 20 to 30 feet from him when they finally gunned him down, as opposed to people all over the, the tower in this huge circle of people firing back and how— one of the things that amazes me about this story is how, after all of that gunfire from all directions, um, we know of no one who was wounded with or uh, with friendly fire. I mean, what is it in the wake of this? More than fifty years later, though, that it's it's so hard for people to uh, accept that maybe he was just no damn good. Well, and, and, you know, th there's a lot of places uh, where I'm not very popular because, I mean, you guys read my book. I, I don't have a lot of patience with uh, people who, uh, who just decide to kill other people. And you'd be amazed at how many places that makes me decidedly unenlightened. And, uh, but I stand by that. I mean— um, in the end, we talked about this, and I don't want to belabor the point, but uh, in the in the end, when you look at what he did, I don't know how a reasonable person can conclude that there was anything wrong with him other than he decided he wanted to die, but he wanted to die in a big way. And die doing the thing he could do better than just about anybody else, and that was shoot a gun. 
Uh, he was at least as good a marksman as anyone that I know of uh, then or now in the in the Austin Police Department. In many ways, he was better armed than the police officers that were shooting back at him. And he understood that. He understood what, uh, you know, having the, the, the power of 360 degrees uh, shooting down while other people had to shoot up. He, he understood all of that. And in, and in the end, I think uh, in his case, it is easy to latch on to something you are a good cause that you are passionate about. And point to him and say, look, you see what, what this can do. Let me give you examples. You know, the, the, the pharmacy people at the time latched on to the fact that he took speed. Uh, he took uh, 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 amphetamines and, and, um, and uh, things to keep him awake. And when that was made public, they said, well, you see the destructive power of drugs. And uh, when people found out that his daddy was just a brute who took a belt to his kids, you know, the people who don't like that latched on to that. And they said, well, you see, can't you see his daddy beat him as a child? I said, well, you know, what do you mean by that? My dad took a whooping to me on a number of occasions. And I know of a lot of people, you know. And then you have uh, things about like mental health and so forth. And whenever I... Whenever I start asking questions, you know, I've had people accuse me of not caring about the mentally ill and not caring about child abuse. And not that is all besides the point. I care very deeply about those things. But the danger you run when you unscientifically connect those those things is that you you invite people to uh, label. Uh, a recovering drug addict. Are we supposed to label them as a potential mass murderer? Are we supposed to do that? Or even even something like a brain tumor? What what are we supposed to do with uh, people who uh, have brain tumors? Or, uh, in that case, we're doing a tremendous disservice to people who have challenges and who need to be helped. And you're not going to help them by suspecting them of doing something terrible. Well, as I think you said in, a, in an article, look at all of the people that suffered under Stalin and Hitler and had every reason to be not just bitter but to be tormented and, and to be – how many of them became evil murderers? I mean well, uh, almost uh, none. <laughs> his, his military service as a Marine, some people have jumped on that. Well, he, he was a former Marine. Well, every law enforcement officer and one civilian who was up there when Whitman was finally cornered and gunned down, the people who brought this to an end, there was like seven of them. Every single one of them was a veteran. So at that moment in time, if you were a veteran, the odds were seven to one that you'd be a police officer. And one to seven that mm -hmm. you'd be a, committing a crime of any kind. Well, you know, in covering cases like this, and I'm just going to point to the McDuff case, a serial killer. You know, I've used the word Old Testament evil. Boy, that bothers people. But, you know, if you looked at McDuff, 
cold, calculating, planning, and then what he would do to his victims. I was I was belittled uh, by a, 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 a rhetorical professor or something like that, whatever you call that, for using the word evil at all. And the the title of the article was "Deliver Us from Evil." Well, look. When I use the word evil, I'm using it as an adjective. I, I, I use the word evil because it is an effective way to say this is a really bad person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have never used the word evil as a ghost or a possession or a devil or, you know, uh, evil possessed him in some way, kind of like the exorcist. I've never used the word evil that way. But we should be able to use that word when we want to convey uh, an extreme sense of just evil. He was an evil person. The book is The Sniper in the Tower by Gary Laverne. And it will give you an, an understanding and insight in today's events of where you know, mass shootings and mass murder like this has been so become so commonplace. And you know, there's still lessons to be learned from it. So, Gary, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. It's good to see you guys again. Thank you for your work on the McDuff case, which was part of mm-hmm. the revealing of the depth of depravity of McDuff, but also the problems in the Texas system, which you and Robert journalistically exposed. Thank you. Well, thank you for your depth of reporting, of the digging and detail that you do that you don't, and certainly in the in the crime genre today, you don't see it. Robert, I got in, tr- I stayed in trouble from time to time with the U.S. Attorney's Office and deserved it sometimes, and maybe others didn't, but I got in trouble with some people uh, when we let Gary come down to to the burial site yeah. of Brenda. It was Brenda, wasn't it? Brenda Thompson. Brenda Thompson, the one I found by myself on a Friday afternoon that's been well, described. Well, just to show you how things have changed. <laughs> but you, you know? knew more than any of the rest of us about the case, so I was glad you came down. Well, glad and, we let you in. And I had a laptop with everyone's files digitized, and I could do electronic searches, and Bill, I, I don't know if you were standing next to me who did this, but I tentatively identified Brenda Thompson because it took her skull out and saw missing teeth, and she was the only one of McDuff's victims that had missing teeth, so it had to be her. There were some resentful officers and some people in other fields that thought that's totally inappropriate, but the the storehouse of information was, was Gary. And it helped us. Yes. Oh, yes. I've heard from some of those people. (laughs) Thank you, Gary. Take care. Gary tells us this is his last interview. He's going to ride off into the sunset on his horse. I have almost certainly decided that this will be my swan song. Yeah. I'm retired now, and I'm going to retire from this, too. You made a big difference in the world, in the way people understand crime and the way people deal with it. And uh, thank you. Thank you, Gary. Yes, sir. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. 
You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.